sex themes presented in the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Happy New Year, weirdos. It's been a bit of a struggle to push out content lately, but I am back today and I am here to talk about not a theme in horror, but a director. Uh, This is someone who uh, was important during the heyday of the 80s, the glory days of horror, Um, but he maybe doesn't get talked about as much as some of the other iconic directors we love so much. And that person is Joe Dante, or as I like to call him, Uncle Joe. And the reason why I call him that is because uh, every time I see him talking about horror, like on a documentary or something, I just light up. Um, I have an affection for him that I just don't have for many other directors, beloved as they are. And I think it's because he just knows so much about film in general, and he always seems excited to be talking about it. And he also seems like, you know, your cool uncle that like you don't see often enough, who has been everywhere and done everything and always has interesting stories to tell. And I have the same affection for Mick Garris. Sometimes you'll also hear me refer to him as Uncle Mick. And the whole uncle thing is sort of inspired by Stephen King, because if you are a constant reader, then you know that Stephen King refers to himself as Uncle Steve. And um, and so I have kind of the same reverence for Joe Dante and Mick Garris as I have for Stephen King um, when they talk and uh, when I read what they write. I just feel like there's just this um, this like just kindred familial just spirit of wisdom. And so this uncle term is specifically reserved for some of these old souls of horror. But if you aren't familiar with Joe Dante, I'm sure you're familiar with some of his work. Um, He is the creator behind the original Piranha, The Howling, Gremlins, The Burbs. He did shorts on Twilight Zone the movie, Masters of Horror, recently Nightmare Cinema, and just like so much more. Um, he's also done, I think, quite a bit of, you know, non-horror and uh, that I have admittedly not seen, but uh, I fully intend to. But today, of course, we're going to focus on his horror works. And the reason why I want to talk about Joe Dante is because his style is like pretty particular. His work mixes kind of whimsical and or like goofy elements from cartoons with the visuals and the themes that we associate with classic horror. And I'm not a real big fan of the horror comedy subgenre. And I wouldn't really classify Joe's work as that, even though there are some comedic elements. Um, But somehow he just manages to create this strange and unsettling blend that works and is unlike anything else. And before we dive into Joe's particular films, I want to talk a little bit about kinder trauma. Um, Kinder trauma is something that I have known about for a long time and have experienced quite a bit, but I've only found the term for this past year. And kinder trauma is something that you see or experience as a child that leaves a lasting, like, disturbing mark. And so um, there's a lot of things that we experience as kids that can be classified as kinder trauma. 
And I think that probably starts with Disney movies. And when you think of Disney, you think, you do not think of horror. You think, oh, it's like, you know, the princess and love and good triumphing in the end. But in order for you to have an appreciation of the wholesome themes of Disney, you need the dark, scary elements. You need the villains and the monsters and the adventure and the danger. And if you don't have those things, it's really difficult to appreciate the wholesome elements of Disney stories, of Disney movies. And I have always said that Walt Disney really understood that. And so um, Disney is not all kittens and rainbows and happiness. You know, you have witches and wicked stepmothers and dragons and all of these things that are more at home in the old gritty fairy tales than what we think of as like modern day Disney. And Joe Dante specifically talked about Disney in uh, the documentary Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, which if you've not seen it, you need to. I believe it's streaming free on Amazon Prime. If not, pay the $3 or whatever and watch it. Um, I've watched it many times. Um, it's your you know typical horror documentary with prominent figures in the genre. But what makes it different is they talk about horror movies through the decades and how each decade of horror is a particular reflection of what America was fearing in that decade. And so it just offers some really insightful context into how American fears have translated into American art. And I just love it. I revisit it every two or three years. It's always a great watch. But in that documentary, Joe Dante talks specifically about Pinocchio. If you have not seen Pinocchio, please watch it. It's just a wonderland for horror fans. There's a lot of really creepy stuff that happens. But he particularly references the transformation of Pinocchio's friend from a boy into a donkey. Now, because Joe Dante directed The Howling, uh, The Howling has wonderful, wonderful werewolf transformation that was pulled off by special effects wizard Robotine. Uh, Robotine is also responsible for the special effects in The Thing, which I think can be considered the greatest special effects maybe ever, practical effects ever. So Joe is familiar with a good transformation scene. And uh, he says, don't quote me on this exactly, but he basically says that the donkey transformation scene at Pinocchio is about as scary as anything else you'll see on the screen. And he says specifically that uh, kids are introduced to these scary elements in Disney movies, and a lot of kids find that that they don't like that. But the ones that find that they do like that are the ones who grow up and graduate to bigger things and are horror fans. And that's me, to a T. I am a Disney nerd. I've always loved Disney movies, and um, I liked all of those scary, dark elements, and I think I always understood that those were important to the larger story and that they weren't just to be dismissed as, you know, oh, well, we don't, you know, we're kids, so we can't see scary things. Um, no, it's actually, it's, it's part of the, the great tapestry of storytelling and fairy tale storytelling in particular. And staying on the topic of Disney, um, in the 80s, there was a period called Dark Disney in which uh, Disney tried to branch out and do some kind of sort of young adult, uh, teenage type movies. And so these were not by any means all out horrors, 
But they were PG, what today would be considered PG-13 movies, but still aimed at a young audience, preteen, teenager. Some of the films that came out during that time were Something Wicked This Way Comes, Return to Oz, and Watcher in the Woods. And I grew up with these movies, and they all have, again, those elements, uh, those darker elements that, you know, you watch it as a 20 or 30 year old, and you're like, this isn't that scary. But when you're five, eight, 10, it's terrifying. And these are the things that stick with you. These are the images that stick with you. And much in the same vein, we had Jim Henson, uh, who was coming out with things like The Witches, uh, Labyrinth. And then there was also A Never Ending Story, which is mostly fairy tale, but again, has those elements of drama and darkness and danger that are so important. Another one that I want to mention that specifically sticks out in my mind is a weird little Canadian movie called The Peanut Butter Solution. I have not seen this movie since I was a kid probably, but um, I've listened to one podcast about it and it kind of jogged my memory. Um, And it is a very strange movie about this kid who goes into this haunted house and he is scared by a ghost and he's so scared that his hair falls out. And then he finds out about this peanut butter solution that he can put on his head so that his hair will grow back. And like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It The movie just gets weirder from there. So a uh, little plug here. Friends of this podcast, Straight Chilling Podcast, they are going to be covering the peanut butter solution sometime in the next couple months. And um, I will key you guys in whenever they're going to cover that so that you can check it out. Um, But it's just one of those weird, weird movies that as an adult so many years later, I just think about, man, like, what nightmare fuel? You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. So getting back to the work of Joe Dante, I'm going to talk about uh, just three of Joe Dante's movies today, all three of which came out in the 80s. And I want to kind of look at these three films through a few lenses, a few themes that I think are common to Joe's work. And those kind of ideas and themes are pure Americana, uh, things are not what they seem, fantastical whimsy, and hopeful resolutions. And I think these are themes that definitely resonated when these films came out. And as horror so often proves, I think they still resonate and will continue to resonate, especially in American culture. So first off, I want to talk about Twilight Zone the movie, which came out in 1983. Um, It was, I believe, produced by Steven Spielberg, and it was a little anthology And every segment was directed by somebody who ended up being like a big deal. So Steven Spielberg directed a segment. uh, Joe Dante did. um, John Landis directed a segment. That was the infamous segment where Vic Morrow got decapitated by a helicopter. It's a whole thing. If you don't know about it, uh, watch the Twilight Zone episode on Cursed Films. And then also George Miller directed the uh, the famous Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with John Lithgow. So Joe's segment is the one called It's a Good Life, and it's about this strange little boy, Anthony, and his family. And uh, the pure Americana aspect 
of his segment is, I mean, you've got this woman and she's sort of traveling across the country road trip. And it definitely seems like she's maybe trying to start a new life. Like you get the feeling like she's left something behind and uh, in accordance with the American dream, she's setting out fresh start. Um, We see her at this diner, this kind of all-American diner. Um, and there's a boy there who, you know, rode his bike there. He's playing a video game. It just has that real hometown, you know, small, small restaurant kind of feel. Um, and then we also have this sort of perfect house, like this perfect postcard house. And we have this family celebrating uh, Anthony's birthday. And then we move on to uh, the things are not what they seem. And like I said, Helen is starting out. Um, with a fresh start, but I get the feeling that she's maybe left a relationship behind. Um, you just sort of get that feeling like she's like somebody's maybe even following her. You get the feeling that she's sort of running away from something, um, you know, possibly an abusive relationship. Maybe it just wasn't a good fit. Not sure, but definitely get the feeling that she's running away from something. And then once we get to Anthony's house, the family is just, it's very odd. Um, They're super overly friendly. They seem on edge. Um, As soon as she leaves the room, they're digging through her personal things. Um, And of course, we find out that they are all being held captive by Anthony, who has, he's like basically a little monster. He's gotten them there and uh, they sort of have to do everything he wants and they can't make him mad or they get wished away. And we don't know exactly what that means, but you know it's not good. And then, of course, we come across his sister, his biological sister, who's up in her room just watching TV, and she has no mouth. <laughs> um, so there, there are definitely very sinister things going on in this house. The uh, fantastical whimsy elements of this film are both terrifying and fun. Um, The upstairs of the house is super creepy. There's lots of like uh, gray and black and diagonal lines, Um, but it's also very, it's very cartoonish. The whole house is basically cartoonish. Uh, We see later that Anthony has basically fashioned the house to be like a cartoon because he loves cartoons. And eventually, these uh, cartoons sort of come to life in the real world because there's always cartoons playing at his house. And they uh, he gets he gets really angry, and he ends up bringing these cartoons into the real world. Particularly, a bunny who um, we have a bunny, and then we have a sort of Tasmanian devil type creature. And they're both really scary, particularly the bunny, but they're also kind of silly, kind of goofy. And just the whole thing, um, even when it gets nuts and he just loses his temper and sort of goes off on his family, it's so creepy, but it it's, it's not altogether serious. It does have that sort of goofy cartoonish feel to it. And I think this reinforces the unique vision and perspective that Joe Dante has. He he loves cartoons and he loves Disney and he understands the playful but sometimes ominous nature of our children's tales. And even though things are super chaotic and um, the little boy Anthony is basically an evil child, 
we do get hopeful resolution. And we get that in that Anthony sends everyone away, seemingly to a better, not a more terrifying place. He basically sets his captive family free. And Helen decides to stay with Anthony to help him kind of learn about his gift and control and channel it in a positive way. And going back to the idea of Helen fleeing a relationship, I think she is able to, you know, read the room, read the situation, and stand up to Anthony because she has left behind this toxic relationship. She does not want Anthony to continue to control and hurt people. And so she decides to, she stands up to him and tells him, you can't do this. You can't be this way, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to commit to you. Um, I'm going to help you. And they kind of ride off into the sunset together into what we believe is going to be a happy ending for both of them. Next, we're going to talk about what is probably Joe Dante's most popular movie and what was a really important movie to me when I was a kid, and that is Gremlins. Gremlins came out in 1984. And again, we come across these elements of pure Americana. We have the all-American family. You have a dad who works hard, a mom who's taking care of her house and her family, their son is working at a bank, trying to get a successful start as we do when we're young. Um, we have a hardworking dad brings home a pet for his son, um, which is something we've most of us have experienced. Um, we also have this little budding love story between these young people, and it's very familiar to us, very comforting. And then, of course, it's taking place at Christmas time, and it's a very, very, you know, classic American Christmas. Every all the stores have lights, and we see the trees, and it's just, you know, it's that that classic small town Christmas. But of course, things are not what they seem. Uh, just in general, even though Gizmo, the little Mogwai, he's adorable, but like, what is he? Like, he's clearly he's a little monster creature. Um, he's not a dog or a cat. He's this strange little beast. Um, and of course, we have these rules. And uh, they don't really seem to take the rules very seriously. Um, I mean, the dad communicates the rules and says they're important. Um, but it seems like the, the importance of the rules are never really stressed. Um, we also have Miss Deagle, who is this mean old lady who kind of owns a lot of property in town. She's super mean to our protagonist, Billy. She threatens to, like, have his dog put to sleep. She's very um, Wicked Witch of the West, which, again, we've got that sort of uh, children's tale, fairy tale situation happening. We also get a couple of just, like, dark pockets in the middle of this, like, fairly shiny movie. Um, we get Mr. Futterman, who's like, uh, he runs a snowplow, and he's also just kind of, you know, the lovable town drunk. And he gives this gremlins warning, and this is before we've met our gremlins, but he talks about uh, during the war, these little monsters who like tampered with their equipment during the war, but he's drunk and, you know, everybody's like, oh, Mr. Futterman, you know, but that's a scary moment. And then we also get the horrifying Santa story. So Billy's love interest 
she tells the story about how, well, she talks about, first of all, she talks about how she doesn't like Christmas. She doesn't celebrate Christmas. And Billy's like, oh, why not? Why don't you love Christmas? And initially she says, like, people get depressed at Christmas. Did you know there's more suicides at Christmas than any other time of the year? And like, that's a downer enough. But then later we get her personal story of why she doesn't like Christmas. And it's because one year when she was a kid, her dad was going to surprise her. He was going to come down the chimney dressed as Santa Claus. And he got stuck in there. And she and her mom didn't know that he was doing this. He got stuck in there and they found him in her chimney dead. Such a disturbing little story in the middle of this like kind of light horror comedy. So terrifying. And even though we do have those little dark moments, we do get more fantastical whimsy. Uh, The gremlins are scary, especially initially. They're scary. Um, They're literally like running amok and killing townspeople. However, they're also silly. Um, They're basically cartoon characters in this movie. Um, They're wreaking havoc at the bar They're singing Christmas carols. We see them at the movies, like throwing popcorn and just like having a ball. Um, Another thing to note about the movie theater scene is that we get Snow White, which, again, is a nod to uh, Joe Dante's love of cartoons and of Disney. And because this movie is a Christmas movie and I would say a family movie, we have to get that hopeful resolution at the end. Um, The gremlins are defeated. Um, we do see Billy and his love interest, whose name, I'm sorry, I cannot remember. It's Phoebe Cates. So I'll just call her Phoebe. Um, we see Billy and Phoebe kind of come together and we assume that they're going to be a couple. Um, the grandfather, the Chinese grandfather, um, he comes back, of course, and takes Mogwai. He scolds the family for abusing and squandering this responsibility because also uh, it should be noted that the dad sort of stole the Mogwai at the beginning of the movie. Um, however, even though he's scolding them, he does tell Billy someday he may be ready because he can see that little Gizmo and Billy have a connection. Um, so that's kind of a hopeful, a little, a little grain of hope for the future for Billy. And we get the feeling that this family is going to be okay. Um, the mom, in one of my favorite scenes, the mom successfully defends herself and kills, I think, like three gremlins. So she's very strong and capable. The dad, even though he's this fumbling inventor who um, really is not very good at what he does, um, you know, he's there for his family. Billy, like I said, he gets the girl. Um, and it just seems like they've all learned from this and like they're going to be okay and that the town is going to be okay. So we've talked about the Twilight Zone, which takes place essentially in one house. We've talked about Gremlins, which takes place in an entire small town. And the next movie I want to talk about takes place in just one little neighborhood. And that is The Burbs from 1989. Now, I love this movie and I've loved it since I first saw it. Who knows when, probably on TV or something when I was a kid, but it just has, it's just so fun. And it has an amazing cast of Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, Corey Feldman, Carrie Fisher, um, other people who you've seen and stuff before. It's just It's just such a fun watch and such an easy watch. And it's like a little scary, but it's more comedy than horror. So this one, the Americana, the pure Americana, and this one is just obvious. I mean, we're in a typical 
White Picket Fence Neighborhood. I mean, the title of the movie is The Burps. We've got this sort of a standard cast of characters that we would expect in an American neighborhood. We have the annoying teenager. We've got, you know, the beautiful wife that everybody, you know, wants to sneak a peek at her in her bikini. Um, We have the buddy to Tom Hanks' character. He's like his buddy neighbor. They get together to barbecue and stuff. And then we've got the old man who has his little froofy little dog that he loves so much. So this is a pretty stereotypical cast of characters. And of course, the husband, he works, we assume, in an office somewhere, probably in a city nearby. Um, But he's overworked and he's tired, so he decides to take a vacation. And, um, you know, during his vacation, he's trying to relax, but he's probably thinking about work. He can't quite relax. You know, he needs something to do. And that's kind of how he gets himself into this situation. Another fun little thing that I feel like is very American Ray and his neighbor have, uh, well, his neighbor tells him this uh, story about um, Skip. And Skip was uh, somebody who lived in their neighborhood and he worked at the local soda shop. And the urban legend is that he killed all these people in his house. And one summer it got really hot and the neighbors started smelling this like terrible odor And when they got to his house, they found like all these dead bodies. So you have this urban legend about this somebody in the neighborhood who went crazy and killed a bunch of people. Um, So it's kind of like that uh, every neighborhood's got that haunted house, um, which is just, it's a great trope. So now we're set up to move right into things are not what they seem in this beautiful suburb. Um, We find that like really these people don't get along. There are many sort of grudges and conflicts with this cast of neighbors. Um, They're also kind of all super nosy and way too involved in each other's business. And then, of course, the biggest, the things are not what they seem in this movie, is, of course, the new neighbors, the Klopex. And the Klopex are, of course, they're just, they're different. They're from a different country. They have an accent. They dress differently. They keep to themselves. And also there's like noises coming from their house at night. And so, of course, the nosy neighbors um, start to talk about this. And, oh, who are these people? And where did they come from? And what are they doing over there? You know, and they think of all sorts of horrible, horrible things. Most of this seems to be kind of perpetuated by Art, by Ray's friend Art, who is the same one who told us the urban legend about Skip. So we already sort of had this in our mind. In this pure white picket fence neighborhood combined with these new spooky neighbors are the perfect formula to set us up for some of our fantastical whimsy. So we get nods to both uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon characters and Disney's Pinocchio, just in the way people are dressed. And I'm not really sure why. I remember um, when I was a kid feeling like some of these costume choices and stuff were real strange and that they didn't fit into the world I was looking at. And I think maybe Joe Dante just liked those visuals and he wanted to have sort of this off feeling to this family. So he dressed them in some of these sort of cartoonish get-ups. And like I said, it worked on me because I felt like, I don't understand this. It just feels a little unsettling. 
And then what might be my favorite piece of fantastical whimsy in this movie is Ray's nightmare. So he has all these thoughts in his head perpetuated mostly by art of just, you know, what these people are doing. Before he went to bed, he was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And so he has this nightmare. And there are all these just crazy elements. There is a chainsaw in his nightmare. There's a part where he is essentially a human sacrifice on a barbecue like you would have in your backyard. Um, Skip, the homicidal soda jerk, makes an appearance, but it's art dressed up as Skip, the homicidal soda jerk. And it's just a really fun. It's just a really fun sequence. And then, of course, we've got this mad scientist quality because we're not sure what the neighbors are doing. And one of them is a doctor. He's very well spoken and seems very even keeled, but also seems very suspicious. So we, there is this, this air about this strange house and what's going on in your basement. And then, of course, we find out in the end, it is a mad scientist situation. They have bodies in their basement. They have bones in their basement. There's bones in the car. It's, it's just full on because we, you know, we thought, well, it's going to be a twist. It's it's not going to be this. It's going to be something else. Um, at one point, Ray even tells Art, like, you know, we, <laughs> we are the crazy neighbors. We have bothered these people. We dug up their basement. We blew up their house. Like, we're the bad neighbors. We're the crazy people. Um, and we think that's going to be the resolution is that all along they thought these people were killers and they're not. And then plot twist. They are killers. So the mad scientist quality is really punched up at the end because they are, in fact, guilty of having bodies in their basement. Now, I will say that Burbs is a little more complicated and uh, has a little bit more critique, I guess you'd say, of American life. So the hopeful resolution isn't quite as clear as um, Gremlins and Twilight Zone, but I do feel like it's there. Um, I feel like Ray in particular has learned his lesson about, um, you know, nosing into all his neighbors' lives and casting judgment and jumping the gun because even though his neighbors were in fact guilty, there were a lot of things he did, a lot of really unacceptable things he did uh, with little to no evidence to cause these people a lot of harm. And so uh, had they just been normal neighbors who were a little odd, you know, I think it was it was a very telling of his own character and of his friend Art's character. And of course, the neighbors who were actually killing people have been caught. And now the neighborhood can go back to normal. But as I've already said, the, the neighborhood was a little dysfunctional to begin with. But I really, really like the last line in the movie. And so we have Corey Feldman, who, again, is the he's the annoying teenager who just throughout the entire movie has just been sort of relishing in the ridiculousness. And um, you can tell that he just is so entertained by his neighbors. He seems to actually like his neighbors, sort of in spite of their quirks and whether they're grumpy or whether they're kind or not. He's kind of just always there for it. And um, he even like invites friends over to like watch the ridiculousness that is his neighborhood. And so at the end of the movie, you, know, you have cops, you have, you know, there's been an explosion and it's just chaos and ridiculousness. And um, Corey Feldman's character looks at the camera and says, God, I love this neighborhood. And it just kind of sums up, I think, how we feel about our homes and maybe even like our country at large. Um, just, you know, in spite of its flaws and its quirks and its tragedies and its messiness, like, you know, it's still home. 
and we love it. God, I love this street. So these movies are super fun and just easy to watch on a surface level. Um, I would say all of them are in the comfort horror category for me personally. But I also think they have some important things to say and really ring true in American culture of just about any time. So I will let you watch and decide what they might have to say about our lives today. Um, but I'm just really glad we have them. And I'm really glad we still have Joe Dante. Um, I think his particular style and his perspective is just a hidden gem in American filmmaking. And like I said, the three films I discussed today are definitely my favorites, um, but there's a lot of his work that I've not seen, and I definitely want to explore some of that, particularly uh, maybe some of his non-horror stuff, and uh, just see how he approaches storytelling um, from a more dramatic standpoint. So one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode, one of the reasons why I was inspired to do this episode um, I've always been a fan of Joe Dante's work, but I discovered in the past couple of years his podcast. It's called The Movies That Made Me, and he co-hosts it with Josh Olson, who I think is a screenwriter. I'm not really familiar with him, but they interview successful people in film, and they chat with their guests about films that are special to them, that made an impact on their life, uh, that influenced them to get into the film industry. But it's usually like outside their chosen genre or whatever made them famous. And so it's really an interesting podcast. And it has led me to realize that Joe Dante is just this vast well of knowledge when it comes to film of all genres of all time. And... Um, People on this show will refer to some really obscure stuff, and more often than not, he's familiar with like all of it and usually has some kind of like story about its production or like tidbit of knowledge or knows the people who made it and is like, oh, yeah, so-and-so blah, 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 had this problem or did that or whatever. So usually on the show, the guest picks, I think it's 10 movies. They're kind of fast and loose with the rules. But in the spirit of the movies that made me, I wanted to briefly share my own list of movies that have been particularly influential to me. Not that Joe Dante would care about my list, but still, just listening to that show has made me think, you know, if I had to come up with a list of movies that are super important to me, inside, outside the horror genre, it doesn't matter, like, what would those be? And so here's my list, and I will just give you kind of like a brief reasoning for why I chose each of these. And these are in chronological order, and they only go up through like my 20s. I tried to keep it to like just the first half of my life. Number one, Wizard of Oz. I was obsessed with Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. I watched it so many times. My parents used to like bribe me with it. Like, oh, if you'll do this or this or go here with me and be good on the way home, we'll rent Wizard of Oz. And it's just, you know, Wizard of Oz is a spectacle. I mean, it was a spectacle at the time. It's still a beloved classic today. And again, it has that little element of danger. You've got the witch and the flying monkeys that are disturbing to people. And just really, I think it was the first time that I, I just understood how a movie could be so captivating and beautiful and really move you. Up next is 
A Nightmare on Elm Street because it was the first horror movie I ever saw. Um, I remember that I was five, and I don't know if that's a correct memory or if that's just what I have told myself over the years, but it was the first scary movie I saw, and uh, just what an impression. I mean, Freddy Krueger is arguably the most captivating slasher villain, whatever you want to call him, and um, Wes Craven's vision for that movie was just fantastic, and I would almost argue that watching it as a child... It almost is more powerful and makes more sense than if you watch it as an adult, because as an adult, you're a little more critical of dream logic and narrative and how do these things fit together. But when you're a kid, you're just sort of like taking it in like, oh, okay, here we are. You know, you don't question it. Um, So Nightmare on Elm Street will always hold a very special place in my heart because of that. Uh, Also, it did come out the same year I was born. So I like to say that Freddy Krueger and I were born the same year. Number three on my list is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I clearly remember my parents, my dad saying, oh, I think you'll like this movie. We're going to rent it. Again, I was younger in 89. I was like, I was like five. And I was, I just I wasn't really interested in it. And then we brought it home and watched it. And oh, I just loved it. I just loved it. I've always loved a good adventure movie. I feel like maybe there aren't enough of them. Uh, like the Pirates of the Caribbean series super fun. Um, So I would just, I would really love to see more great movies in the adventure genre. Uh, Although I would argue that none of them will quite hold up to Indiana Jones. Next up on my list is a Disney movie, The Lion King. The Lion King came out in 1996. I was 12. So I was the perfect age. Now, now I would not say that The Lion King is like my favorite Disney movie, even of that era. But at the time, I just remember me and my friends were obsessed with The Lion King. We talked about it all the time. We watched it so many times. I had a cassette tape of the single, um, the Can You Feel the Love single from Elton John and just played it and played it and played it. Probably drove my parents crazy. Um, It just had a huge impact. It was like a landmark moment for Disney when I was that age. Moving right along to something completely different, Jurassic Park. I was also obsessed with dinosaurs when I was that age. Uh, Jurassic Park came out in 93, I think, 93, 94. So I was like 9, 10, um, was already obsessed with dinosaurs. And then this giant blockbuster comes on the scene. And I mean, again, it's one of those classics. People still talk about it. The effects still hold up. It was just big and awesome. And I remember the first time I saw it on the big screen, I was overwhelmed. It was just, it was a moment. And it was also a moment like uh, when you go to fast food restaurants, there's Jurassic Park toys and cups. And it was one of those big old fashioned blockbusters that just saturated the entire summer. And it was a huge deal to me. So those are all kind of like my kid movies, I think I would say. And then everything after from here on out is more of like, teenage to adult. So, you know, I was interested for different reasons and they made a different kind of impact on me. So the first one I want to mention, 1996's Romeo and Juliet. Oh man. Uh, My best friend at the time, I was 12, told me about this movie, Romeo and Juliet. 
she was uh, like more artistic than me and like cooler than me. Her name was also Nicole. Um, she's currently like a performer and like a body paint artist in Tampa and she's still cooler than me. But uh, anyway, she brought it over and was like, oh, I have to do this movie. And if you've not seen Boz Lorman's Romeo and Juliet, it's like uh, it's, it says modern day sensibilities, like modern day clothes, modern day looks, but they still talk like the original Shakespeare literature. So I was just like, I've never seen anything like this. I don't even 100% understand what they're saying, but like I'm here for it. I'm just here for the ride. And also, again, I mentioned I was 12 and it was the first time I had ever seen Leonardo DiCaprio. And Leonardo DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet is the most beautiful version of Leonardo DiCaprio. And so I was just like, who is this person? I want to know more. (laughs) So it was one of like probably the first like celebrity crushes I had. But like all that aside, I could watch Romeo and Juliet today and I feel like it just totally holds up. Just complete, complete spectacle filmmaking. There's glitter and there's fireworks and there's costumes and there's singing and there's dancing. And it's just, I mean, it's just pure entertainment and got me interested in Shakespeare. So bonus points for that. So hot on the heels of that, because I'm I'm a horror fan this whole time. Uh, all this time I've been telling you about all these movies. I'm a horror fan this whole time. I've been watching horror this whole time. Um, so we're going to get to just the second horror film on this list. And that is 1997 rolls around. Wes Craven changes my life again with Scream. When I saw Scream, it was scary. It was edgy. It was cool. It was awesome. Um, I remember watching it at a slumber party with like my cheerleading team. And it was the third or fourth time I had seen it. But it was just as scary. Um, I remember up until that point thinking like, you know, like I love horrors. I love scary movies. Um, But all I was watching was old scary movies. And it really seemed like horror was an old thing. It was people weren't doing horror anymore. And when Scream came along, I just knew even at that young age, like this is something new. This is going to change things. And it did. And so um, I've seen even as of late, a lot of people kind of like hating on Scream like I was on a big deal. And I'm just like, if you were around when it came out, you know, it is a big deal. And it really is amazing that Wes Craven did something so awesome with Freddy Krueger in 1984 with Nightmare on Elm Street. And here he is again in 1997 doing it with Scream. And so that movie will always, always hold a special place in my heart. And it sort of reignited my love and my interest in the horror genre. So same year, different genre, different movie, Titanic. Oh, Titanic was my favorite movie for such a long time. And much like Jurassic Park, I was already obsessed with the Titanic. I learned about the story of the Titanic when I was in third grade and was just obsessed with the story. Just I love history. And so any cool historic event like that always piques my interest. And so I had been really, really fascinated by the Titanic story for a really long time. And then I heard they were coming out with a Titanic movie. And I was kind of like, I didn't know who James Cameron was. Didn't know. Um, It didn't matter at the time, but I thought, oh, there's this big giant movie coming out about the Titanic. The story really doesn't even matter. I'm just excited to see the Titanic on the big screen. 
And then as I mentioned earlier, Leonardo DiCaprio. So now I'm 14. I'm familiar with Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm already obsessed with Titanic. So it just hit me like a freight train. I mean, the Titanic was beautiful. Rose was awesome. The costumes were great. Leonardo DiCaprio was beautiful. I was already in love with him. I mean, it just, it hit me at the right time. And so I think I saw Titanic on the big screen maybe four times, four or five times, which is a lot. Uh, Not a lot as my friend Melissa, who saw it like 12 times. She was more obsessed than me. But uh, that was a big one. Really, really big one for me. So there's a little bit of a gap between Titanic and my next one, um, in which time I grew up and became an adult. Um, So the next one that I want to mention is 2002, I believe, Gangs of New York. Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. And um, I've seen some people place this movie like super low on their Scorsese list and like, whatever. I mean, I like his other movies, you know, Goodfellas, great, whatever. Um, But Gangs of New York was just super specific and awesome to me. I was familiar with Daniel Day-Lewis before Gangs of New York, but his performance as Bill the Butcher just blew me away. It was the first time that I really understood what exceptional acting was and what it meant and what it looked like. And I've already mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio twice. The reason I love this movie has nothing to do with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I mean, I think he was great, whatever. But like this movie just to me was the first time I think I understood what like serious movies were. Because it was just really violent and really gritty. Um, this is a long movie. Uh, and I was just like, this is something different. This is serious and like epic. It's not just like, oh, we're going to watch a movie. It'll be fun. Um, it hit me harder than that. And uh, so I've carried a love for Gangs of New York around for a long time. It came out, like I said, I think in 2002. So I was like 18 I didn't see it, though, until I was probably 20 or in my early 20s, because it's just not something I was aware of. Um, But when I saw it, I was like, this is something new. This hits me differently than other movies. So the last two movies that I want to mention are horror movies, and they are horror movies that I saw in my early 20s. The first one I want to talk about is one that I saw in 2005, and that is Saw. Now, as I already mentioned, this whole time, my whole life, ever since I first saw Nightmare on Elm Street, I've been a horror fan. And not just a casual horror fan, like a serious, like scary movies were always my favorite. But uh, I had a friend, I was on the college program at Disney World in 2005. And um, I had a friend, we were trying to go to um, a concert downtown. We were trying to go to an Emory show downtown. It was sold out. Uh, we couldn't get in. So he and I went to uh, used to, Disney Springs, which used to be called Downtown Disney, just to hang out, shop, whatever. And while we were down there, there was a poster for Saw 2. And he was like, oh, man, I can't wait to see that. And I was like, oh, you know, like I never saw the first one. And he was like, you haven't seen Saw? And I was like, no, because I was kind of afraid of it. I had heard that it was really gory and like super intense. And I just, I just didn't think I was ready for it. So he was like we're going to buy it. We're going to go home. We're going to watch it. So we went into the Virgin Megastore because that still existed at the time. Went in there. He bought 
saw not on Blu-ray, on DVD. We went back to um, my apartment, which is where his girlfriend lived. His girlfriend and I were roommates. That's how we got to be friends. We had the same taste in music and stuff. And we watched Saw. And I think it was just the two of us. Maybe somebody else was there at the time. But it was just, it was a small group, I remember. And we watched Saw. And I just was captivated by it. I was like, wow. Um, at the time, and it's laughable now, but yes, at the time it was like, oh yeah, this is like intense as far as gore and the subject matter is really good and the story is great. And oh my gosh, is this guy really going to saw his foot off? This is intense. And then you get to the end and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Saw, the guy gets up off the floor and it's been him the whole time. And it's just... And then when he says game over and like slams the door, it's just like, oh my gosh, what, what did I just see? Like, this is special. And Saw is what got me into really, really deep dive, serious horror. Um, it changed, it changed my life the way Nightmare on Elm Street did. It changed my life the way Scream did. It made me realize there is more to horror than just fun and scares and jump scares and screams. And it can be really, really serious. And after that, I went down the rabbit hole. Um, I also saw American Psycho for the first time that fall. And it just really, really introduced me to the world of like dark and twisted, serious horror. And so that leads me to um, the last piece that I want to talk about. And that is, uh, so I saw, uh, saw, I saw that when I was 21, I believe. And um, the next two films I want to talk about, I saw those when I was, oh, maybe 23, 24. And um, like I said, Saw kind of took me down a rabbit hole of serious horror, more intense horror. I started seeking out, um, I don't want to say the most messed up things I could find because that's never been my jam, but I was just like, I want to see stuff that's challenging. And um, that eventually led me to international films and then led me to the French films, the new French extremity, which I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. Now I do. And um, led me to first high tension and then inside. Um, of course, they're two different films, two different directors, two different stories, but I really view them as a set, as a pair. And um, those two movies, and I've said it a million times during this list, but I mean, those two movies were just game changers for me. Um, again, they made me realize how serious horror could be. And it doesn't even matter if it's in your language. Um, you know, there's something universal here. Uh, people are doing really creative, important things with horror storytelling. And um, I've watched High Tension, I think, one and a half times. I've watched Inside, I think, three times. But I think maybe it introduced me to the kind of movies that you watch and you love and you feel are important, but you maybe only watch once or twice and you don't feel the need to ever revisit those again. And um, not so much High Tension, but certainly Inside is still to me one of the most important movies I've ever seen and um not for everyone but for me personally and if you want to hear more about 
why inside is so important to me personally. Uh, you can listen to the motherhood episode, or you can go read my blog entry specifically about inside. But uh, I'm just so happy that that movie exists. And um, I think it's really important for horror. I think it's really important for women. I think it's really important for women who have experienced either um, the loss of a pregnancy or the loss of a child. And uh, like I said, I've covered that ground a lot. So if you want to uh, dig into that, you certainly can in some of my past content. But um, so that's my list of the movies that made me. So uh, I would love to hear like, you know, what are some of the really, really important movies for you? Um, do you love any of the ones that I love? Do you have your own movies that are kind of, that are not horror um, that you, you know, kind of enhanced your love for horror that you wouldn't be the horror fan you are without them? Um, I would love to hear it. And also be sure to check out uh, the movies that made me, um, especially, you know, scroll through and see if there's a, a particular filmmaker or actor or whatever that you love already and just listen to what they have to say about film and uh, about the things that are important to them and you will discover something new and you will be happy that you invested the time in it. Thanks for tuning in. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook at Light and Shadow Pod. Sign up to become a supporter on Patreon for early access to all episodes and more. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help other people find the show. Until next time, stay spooky.